Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. This week, we flash back to an interview I conducted with fellow co-hosts of the original Rogue Planet podcast, UFO Mod Pod. Hosted by Jason McClellan and Maureen Ellsbury, we dove deep into the UFO topic from a fresh and objective perspective. UFO Mod Pod grew and evolved into what is now known simply as Unknown. In this early episode, the three of us invite the mouth from the South, Micah Hanks, onto the show to discuss several cases pertaining to his own UFO research. And then we dive into his thoughts and theories on UFOs and philosophy. Is, as the late Stephen Hawking once stated, philosophy truly dead? Or can it find a place in the ever-evolving UFO phenomenon and the study of it? Tune in right now to find out. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. talking about ufos and aliens today and i know you make your rounds at uh, some conferences now and again um, lecturing on the topic as well and recently you were at this interesting sounding conference called the space and alien snow fest so i'd love to hear about that event and your experience there yeah well first of all i wish all three of you had been there uh and for the listeners you know, we, we, we've all, the, the three of us, or I'm sorry, the four of us, you're these three guys and myself, we've, we've all been to a lot of conferences together. And that was the very first thing I was thinking while I was at this one. I kid you not. It was a lot of fun. Part of what made this fun that was the fact that it was kind of a smaller crowd. And so it was a little more intimate. It wasn't in, you know, insanely large. And, and it wasn't this, you know, this social movement kind of thing. There was a, a, a very uh, interesting variety of people. My day <laughs> arriving in California was very interesting because I arrived at the airport. The twin brother of the conference organizer picks me up in a Dodge Challenger, and he says, I'm here uh, on strict orders from my bro to pick you and Stanton Freeman up. So I told him, I said, give me five minutes. I'll go inside this airport. I bet you I can find Stanton. I went in the door, turned left, and there he was. He was, he was standing right there. So I went up and uh, I thought, you know, I haven't seen him since uh, – actually, I think the last time I saw him was the 2013 uh, International UFO Congress. I walked up to him. I said, "Stanton, Micah Hanks here." And he looked at me. He looked me up and down. And he goes, "Micah, you look you look so much better than last time." And I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> thanks." <laughs> so, but um, we had such a great time. We get in the car and we're driving out through uh, California and headed up toward the mountains. We're talking about you know Hynek and Hendry and the Center for UFO Studies. We're talking about really got deeply into Philip J. Class. Uh, we began talking about the possible NSA. Oh, there's one of those code words. They're listening. They were listening before. It didn't matter. Uh, but talking about the talking about the NSA UFO files, 
And I have to say, this was a, a unique opportunity because I've met Stan many times. You guys have too. But I had never been in a car with him for five hours. And this was such a treat. We I'm had sure that's a different experience. Five hours in a car with anyone is a different experience. Yeah. <laughs> it was just fascinating because we stopped in Riverside, California for lunch. And uh, the weather was like spring here in the mountains of Asheville. Uh, and uh, it, it just felt so nice. It was this outdoor little kind of dining area. There were these little fountains. We started talking about the Valentich disappearance, which he had looked into. He'd been one of the very first people, incidentally, to bring that to my attention about six years ago. And, uh, for, of course, I've done a lot of research into that particular case, including having gotten to know uh, Frederick Valentich's uh, – well, it wasn't his widow. It had been his girlfriend at the time, Rhonda Rushton, who I've spoken with personally and uh, still working on that case. Uh, you know, It was fascinating to be able to share these thoughts, uh, Stanton's feelings that maybe there was, if not a direct uh, operative or, or a clearance kind of capacity, that at very least in an informant capacity, that class may have worked more closely with central intelligence and other kinds of – Agencies and so to have this experience, yeah, it was surreal to say the least. And uh, we got to Big Bear, great time at the conference. You know, Dolan was there, uh, Linda Moulton Howe, who also got to spend a lot of time with, and had a very interesting several discussions. Uh, and plus, the attendees were really great. Uh, I could even tell you guys, I felt like I almost connected very spiritually with a lot of the people there, and um, it was just a really great time. Awesome. What was uh, what was your talk about, Micah? I was scheduled to give two lectures, and because Super Bowl Sunday fell on the last day, I only actually ended up having uh, time for one. The, the lecture I gave was called The UFO Enigma. And uh, where I went with this was, you know, although this was a UFO-friendly conference, um, I was doing the opening lecture, and by de facto, interestingly, I was doing a lot of emceeing. I try not to do too much emceeing and things at these events, believe it or not, anymore at least. I used to, and the reason why is because... You know, you start doing one thing and people recognize that one thing as being what you do. What you do. Uh, I was backstage. George Norrie comes up. Mike, oh, great to see you. Puts his arms around me. Have you got your guitar? He wanted to know if I had my guitar, you know, and, and if we could do some songs and stuff, you know. And uh, and I've always told you guys this, you know, that typically when I go to these events, I want to go there to be able to speak. And this lecture, Ryan, was primarily about applying science to ufology. I actually brought out some of the very best photographs that I've acquired over the years of uh, various different kinds of UAP, as it were. Um, one involving the alleged brown mountain lights. I think this is a natural plasma. And there's a skeptical group, including an astronomy professor here at uh, ASU University in Boone, North Carolina, Dan Caton. Um, very skeptical guy, someone I also respect an awful lot because of his interest in the uh, brown mountain phenomena for a number of years. And a couple of really good friends of mine from Bell Laboratories managed to, to capture what I feel is one of the best sequences of photographs that shows one of the purported Brown Mountain Lights over Table Rock, which I think the photo was taken in 2010. Uh, so that was one of the slides. Also, a, a unique photograph that was sent to me by a gentleman who is a digital archivist. He believed it was a classic daylight disc photographed near Edwards Air Force Base sometime in the 1950s. Um, this photograph, as it turns out, I'm convinced was a lenticular cloud, but I nonetheless was able to you know, incorporate that into the lecture because the whole point is to be able to, like the Center for UFO Studies and many other groups have done over the years, to try and really learn scientifically, if scientific ufology is what we're after here, 
to identify UFOs. You know, the IFOs are important to understand so that the genuine UFOs can be better studied. And so looking at plasmas, looking at, you know, different kind of atmospheric phenomena like the lenticular cloud formations, uh, looking at a lot of different things. Then finally bringing out a photograph sent to me by a Texas police officer. Uh, this occurred uh, in conjunction with the famous Stephenville UFO incident. Many people always talk about, oh, you know, it had been a bunch of flares that were dropped and it was just that one series of lights and that was the whole incident. Well, that may be true in part, that there was a series of probably what were flares that were dropped and that people saw these and probably thought that they were a UFO. But around that time, a lot of people were describing aerial phenomena around Texas, particularly in the Stephenville area. And this particular police officer had sent this photo to a friend of mine years ago. I'm no longer in touch with this individual, which which is a bit uh, frustrating because the photograph, uh, although it's maybe not the most wow in your face UFO photograph, it's interesting nonetheless. It does appear to show two orange amorphous uh, illuminations that, as the police officer described, had been hovering over the ground. He and, and his uh, partner, who was in the passenger seat of the patrol car, they pull up onto this field. They see these two lights hovering, and as they begin ascending, he gets out of the car and grabs, of all things, he had a film camera in the car with him, which sounds kind of funny for this day and age, but I'll point out that in 2001, the January incident that occurred there in southern Illinois, which is uh, known by some as the St. Clair County UFO incident, where many police officers across many different municipal uh, municipal police departments observed one of these large triangular uh, objects. Um, the police officer that managed to get a photograph had a Polaroid camera in his car. <laughs> so as strange and retro as that sounds, it seems that law enforcement agencies, you know, until within maybe the last 15 years or so, it's, it's been standard practice to keep film cameras in the car with them. I hope maybe by now many of them are using digital cameras or better yet phones now, but I digress. This photograph not only shows these two globes that were spotted by the officers ascending toward a craft. There's this craft that's illuminated by three points of greenish light. And what's even more, more interesting to me, this is the, the optical physis, uh, physicist in me. Bruce McAbee might be pleased when he if you heard that I spotted this, but in this photograph while people are generally looking at the, the, the blatant objects, there are three smaller points of illumination that are in the lower right-hand area of the photograph, which is mostly darkened. It was you know, at night, and the photograph was taken aiming upward, looking up into the sky. And it seems evident to me that the three points of visible light and then the apparent craft that they were ascending toward, uh, I think are represented, uh, although in reverse positioning, by three points of light, which are obviously the reflection of the lights off of the lens of the camera itself. And I know this because I've actually observed this in similar photographs. We've <laughs> managed to, uh, uh, in, in the non-antagonistic uh, sense of the term, we have managed to debunk uh, certain UFO photographs by observing this same phenomena, the reflection of lights off of the lens of a camera. So long story short, this same sort of reflective pattern in reverse and upside down appears in this photograph, which I do think lends credibility to the objects, and maybe a good optical physicist would be able to look at that and even be able to determine something about the distance either between the objects or possibly their distance from the camera based on measurements that could be made in the known curvature and size of the uh, camera lens. So, you know, it's interesting because these kind of things, when you start digging deeply enough into it, it's not just a UFO photograph. It's a photo that tells a story. And so all of these things, Ryan, were really what I incorporated into this uh, this lecture, which was well-received considering that a lot of people kind of these days say, why, why are you worried with UFO research? We know they're here. You know, Stephen Bassett has even said we're beyond the, 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 the period of having to do ufology. We're in the, the disclosure era. No more need for ufology. We know they're here. 
I differ, and and the, we have social movements that are now saying we don't need to do UFO research is a real problem to me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's really irritating. <laughs> uh, and Jason and I say this all the time too. It drives us crazy when we're posting about stuff and people comment, "Why are you even bothering?" We already we know already they're here. Know. It's such a common phrase to people in the UFO uh, sort of field that this happens, and people don't get it that, yes, you may believe that they're already here, but there are a ton of people who don't, A, and we don't have really concrete proof that's going to prove to everyone that extraterrestrial life is visiting Earth. And, and that's, that's why just the this is over, overgeneralization, too. Like, they are here, so we don't need to probe any further like okay they just because you are convinced that some sort of extraterrestrial is here that means every ufo we see is that particular race of extraterrestrial mm-hmm. like let's give up we already know all of the aliens are here yay we know everything about all of the aliens it, it's right. fr- it's frustrating we just throw throw research and, and curiosity and exploration out the window because we may have discovered one thing no not at all the phenomena is huge there's so many related phenomena to ufos and we know nothing mm-hmm. even if we know a little bit we still know nothing and there's so much out there to learn so you know i i get really frustrated with people who even you know looking at what is considered the most basic level the, the lights in the sky they think that there's no point in researching that looking into that investigating possible sources for that i think that's absolutely ridiculous and irresponsible yeah oh it certainly is you know it, as a result of the very sorts of things you guys are all just pointing out right there uh, you know i have over the last few years begun to kind of ask you know what am i actually trying to do as far as UFO research goes. Now, I mean, I've already, I've always known that uh, I've wanted to be a person who tries to look scientifically at actual phenomena. You know, I've, I spend a lot of time at locations like Brown Mountain and uh, and other places where purported sightings are, are uh, you know, alleged to occur. That is one of the problems and always has been with UFOs is that this is a phenomena that can tend to kind of occur randomly. Uh, you, you never really know when or where you might need to be at any given time with you know, with the the likeliest potential that a UFO is going to show up. So, and while I believe that, for instance, the Brown Mountain Light phenomena is clearly some form of natural phenomena, it is, I think, uh, nonetheless, a way that we can learn and observe and study what appears to be a form of aerial phenomena that's illuminative and very much like, and probably constitutes, uh, you know, a similar phenomena to what is reported in a lot of these UFO reports. But the thing is, is by the same token, I look at you know, not to attack someone like Stephen Bassett. I've interviewed him and you know hung out with him a good bit. You guys have. Um, I think Steve's a nice guy. Uh, I I really think I actually appreciate the work that he does. But it's interesting that suddenly, for many UFO research as it is, has become a a political movement. Um, when you go to these events and you see people showing up, you know, with antennas and tinfoil hats, you know, and glow in the dark, you know, trinkets all over them. I mean, you can kind of see that it's a social movement. They feel like they're a part of something bigger than they are by themselves. I think that's what we all really want. I would argue in equal measure that the skeptical movement of today is just as much a social movement as replete with the same dogmatism that belief-oriented UFO research uh, tends to be associated with, which really, to me, often isn't even research. It's merely advocacy. And so as things have come down, and this really is really, I think, just happened in the last few months, I kind of got into a point when we entered the winter months. I got back from... England last year, speaking at a UFO conference there in uh, Leeds, which was 
remarkable. I, in fact, I went down to London afterward and spent a couple of days with Mark Pilkington, director of the film Mirage Men. I, I bring his name up often and people are like, oh, what? You, you're friends with Mark? He's one of them. Well, actually, Mark's probably more in line with me in terms of uh, my own thoughts about the UFO phenomena than many people I've met, maybe with the exception of you guys. He's a, he's a very warm, generous person. I think he did a great job with his book and his documentary. At the core, there is something that they want to keep people away from, a real truth. Back in the early 80s, it was my job to confuse the UFO community. And it was very easy to convince Paul. Paul was a World War II veteran. He's very patriotic. He always flew his flag. Those type of people you can convince that, listen, you can't tell anybody else about this because it's, you know, that you're getting in the wrong hands. Would we use perception to help shroud what we're trying to protect? Absolutely. If you've got an aerial platform that is highly advanced and the public who happens to get a glimpse of the thing, if they're convinced that it's from Venus, then there's no way it could be our military. Well, hey, you know, that's, that's awesome. Hell yes. It's been a cover story in the U.S. for a long time. Tell the media, tell anybody who will listen, that they're using UFOs to cover up advanced technology when the truth is exactly the opposite of the words. We're really a byproduct of extraterrestrial intervention. What if we're their farm animals? What if they eat us psychically? I don't know. There's a lot of possibilities there that are not good. Doty had this wonderful way to sell it. I'm with the government, you cooperate with us, and I'm going to tell you what the government really knows about UFOs deep down in those vaults. I'm going to tell you all kinds of lies. Whatever's going on. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Happening at a government level, everything that I do is being watched. And I have to assume that I'm being bugged. Let's take one step at a time. You're looking at Richard Doty, the professional disinformer, trained to lie. I think that he employs the necessary skepticism without 
ruling out possibilities, and I'm, I'm certain that he thinks that there are strange phenomena and actual quote-unquote UFOs, but he doesn't jump to conclusions without you know facts and data that, that merit those kinds of conclusions. And so you know, for me, ever since coming back from England and the very positive experience I had with the English UFO researchers, and I have to say that community does approach this subject very differently from the, the, the American audiences. It's, it's a very different, at times I think even slightly more intellectual approach that they employ. Talk about that a little bit. I'm curious to hear about that. I'll give you an example. Here's, here's kind of what, what I mean. When we do research here in the United States, most UFO researchers are journalists and historians. You know, Richard Dolan, uh, who is probably, I would say, contributed with his two and now well, three volumes set with UFOs in the National Security State. He's contributed some of the most meaningful historical commentary to the UFO phenomena. Now, where I differ with Rich, and he knows this, and we get along great. I have a rule, and I told this to Linda Moulton Howe at breakfast uh, while we were out in California together. I said, I can love someone dearly and be friends with them and cherish that friendship for life, and I may not agree with a word they say. That's kind of how I feel with a lot of people in the UFO community. I don't agree 100% with probably anybody, but that doesn't make them an enemy. You know, I find that I have more common ground with people uh, than, well, of course, you know, folks, I guess, on the debunker side of the skeptic thing, and we'll come back around to that. In America, though, it is primarily uh, kind of investigative journalism and historical research. Part of the reason I think that that is is because of the difficulty in being able to get out to a site and spot a UFO or know when one's going to show up. So the research that ends up going on, although it can be scientific, is often done after the fact, which usually is reporting on the case and what the witnesses said that they saw, much like a, a journalist would do, or collection and interpretation of a broader you know, swath of data collected over the years, which is really kind of what the historian does. Scientists often do this. But even if you look at Stanton Friedman, when I spoke with him on our way up there to uh, Big Bear in the car, I said, you know, you're a nuclear physicist and a person who is almost really played the role of an investigative historian and journalist by going to the National Archives, digging up files and things like this. You know, that's not necessarily scientific work. He is a journalist and a researcher and a writer who is informed by his uh, you know, extensive background in nuclear physics as a scientist, which has made him unique among researchers. In England, and I think many people here in the United States would kind of look at English researchers as being more skeptical, but I find that those researchers, yes, they are somewhat more skeptical. Rather than leaping toward the quote-unquote UFO equals alien convention of extraterrestrial hypotheses, English researchers, as I find, have gravitated largely toward attempting to look for natural and man-made causes that may constitute ufological phenomena. Uh, The Official Secrets Act, I guess, has also been more conducive to the release of UFO documents from the mod, uh, as our friend Nick Pope will tell us about. Let's first of all find out where you stand on the issues of of, uh, UFOs. You were were skeptical when you first took the job. Are you still skeptical? I'm less skeptical than I was. Mm. I, I think, you know... Looking at the sorts of interesting reports in these files, the the ones from police officers, pilots, military personnel, the ones tracked on radar, um, you know, there's there's material there that certainly makes me think twice. It's not all misidentifications of aircraft lights and weather balloons. Is there any one report that stands out as extraordinary or perhaps most convincing? One in the new files that I particularly like is a a radar sighting where an object travelled 10 nautical miles in 12 seconds, about 3,500 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And and that's on a military radar. So, um, you know, it takes the 
evidence to a whole level over and above just eyewitness testimony. Uh, could that be explained away by something like ball mm. lightning? Would that show up on a, on a radar? It, it really shouldn't. I mean, the assessment given at the time, and, and in, of course, science actually isn't quite sure about ball lightning, so that's almost explaining one mystery with another. But um, mm. the military radar operators said, well, you know, it looks like a real solid return. What about this case in uh, in Suffolk at the, at the US military airbase, which people talk about as being Britain's Roswell? Yes, Rendlesham Forest from December 1980. There are a few new papers on this in the files. This was extraordinary because a UFO landed and was seen by dozens of military witnesses. And critically, they took a Geiger counter to the landing site um, after this thing had gone. And uh, the radiation levels that they um, discovered... The MOD's defence intelligence staff said that they seemed significantly higher than background. But the other thing, too, that's interesting is that this conference I spoke out uh, that my friend Anthony Beckett put on, he's a chemist by trade. I got to his house and he had Harvey Rutledge's book. Uh, what was the, uh, the book? It's called uh, uh, Project Identification, the First Scientific Field Study of UFO Phenomena. Uh, again, a physicist aims at trying to study UFOs. He had Tragedy and Hope by uh, Professor Carol Quigley. You know, these are the kind of books in his UFO library. That was immediately a great experience. And his focus was much like mine. He was trying to understand earth lights and earth light phenomena. But he's putting on a conference called the British Exopolitics Summit. Of all things, despite the term exopolitics being in the name of all the subjects that repeatedly came up throughout the course of the weekend, the one preeminently was the secret space program, this idea about some technology whether or not influenced by something from someplace else, but a technology that is from here uh, primarily and which is built by us. So it's interesting that in England, they do tend to kind of have a little more of a down-to-earth, I think, perspective on what UFOs may be, whereas here in the United States, we do have social movements, political movements even, which are aiming to get the release of the extraterrestrial data, which I think really we need a little bit more information to be able to assume that that is indeed what the government's hiding. I'm sure they're hiding something. I'm not sure it's alien. Well, Micah, you uh, speaking of exopolitics, I I read a recent article of yours. Um, I, I don't know exactly how recent about you know sort of science and the UFO phenomenon and how that can be pitted against philosophy. Would you care to elaborate on how you feel philosophy could help solve some possibly some of these mysteries or your thoughts in general on philosophy either being dead or um, or a way to look further into these phenomenon? Yeah, that's a good question, Ryan. Let me tell you this. Okay, so we know uh, Sir Stephen Hawking, physicist who I admire greatly, and I've read a number of his books, even though a lot of them, he refers to them as being unreadable because of the technical matter. And I'm not talking about a brief history of time. It's his other stuff that he wrote before that that is indeed very much more technically oriented, and one has to push themselves through it and often be able to have reference materials on hand to do so. <laughs> but And I don't claim to be able to understand all of it, but I, I am a, a student of the sciences, self-taught, by the way, largely, you know, I've got a little, a little chemistry hobby, uh, you know, uh, lab here at, at uh, the Grayland Bunker, in fact. And uh, I, I am very serious about my scientific pursuits as, as a hobby and, a, and as a, uh, a supplement to my research. Now, that said, you know, Hawking is someone who, by virtue of being a brilliant physic, uh, you know, a physical scientist, he will say that philosophy is dead. Uh, he specifically said on the last uh, couple of pages in um, A Brief History of Time that the most well-known and eminent philosopher of his day, Ludwig Wittgenstein, said uh, that all that was left for philosophers to study was language. That, uh, I, don't know is, yeah, I don't know if that's really a fair statement. For him to say that language is dead and the reason why is because of Wittgenstein, well, let's just point out that Wittgenstein was a professor, of course, at Cambridge. Hawking 
of course, may not have taken into consideration that Wittgenstein was the most visible philosopher to him by virtue of where he was, and maybe also uh, in part due to his uh, disabilities. But I will also point out that Wittgenstein was no less influential. His Tractata was a treatise all on language. And what he was really saying was not that philosophers only need to study language. He was saying that behind every word, if we break down or even remove language, concepts exist. And that l words are our feeble attempts at trying to express concepts which remain that are deeper. And in that sense, we can also see that when someone says something like philosophy is dead, well, let's think, what do you mean by philosophy? Do you mean philosophy in total? Do you mean classical philosophy, epistemology, you know, ethics or morals? I would not like to think that that's dead. I think the proper question to ask is if one says philosophy is dead, have we asked a philosopher what he thinks about that? Or is Sir Stephen most qualified to make a statement along those lines? Let's get more to the point. He also says about UFOs that UFOs – uh, he discounts in the search for alien life because why, if they existed, would they only show themselves to cranks and weirdos? Now, of course, we know from the work of journalists, the likes of uh, Leslie Kane and many others over the years, that only cranks and weirdos see UFOs. We know, of course, that going back to the Blue Book era, that only cranks and weirdos were seeing UFOs when we actually had government officials. You know, Captain Jack Puckett of Strategic Air Command 1946, prior to Kenneth Arnold, reported a near mid-air collision on his way to MacDill Air Force Base in the summer of that year, he said it was a large rocket-like fuselage with no wings, two illuminated rows of windows, the, the size roughly double the size of the fuselage of a B-17 bomber, and that it was producing a thick red plume of smoke as it passed by his aircraft, nearly colliding with him, going a 1,000 miles an hour, he estimated. He signed a sworn affidavit about this, which, of course, a breath after the Second World War, this would have been of highest national security interest, that there might be what was at that time and could have only been interpreted as being possibly an enemy craft. This would have been a horrible thing for him to hoax or to lie about or to make up. Crank? Weirdo? I think not. The reason that we need philosophy when it comes to UFOs is because science is really what we use. It is the, our best attempt today at gathering data and, and interpreting uh, the, the natural world around us. But it began with philosophy. Philosophy and logical inquiry uh, was the, the primordial pool from which the slime eventually crawled that became modern science. Um, there are still questions which, for instance, if the universe had a beginning, what came before that? Now, Hawking will be quick to tell you that since that is not something that science can probably determine, that thus is not a question that science seeks to explain. Thus, you know, all such things as, you know, an afterlife, death, God, you know, all of these kinds of concepts are are likened to being questions that science does not seek to address. Now, if science does not seek to address these questions, but they are nonetheless relevant and meaningful to us as thinking creatures, well, is it fair to say that no one should address those questions, or merely that if science doesn't, perhaps someone else should? Hence the philosopher. I think that there's very easily a case to be made that philosophy is still important. Philosophy working in conjunction with science and mathematics can help kind of temper science and move it in a productive direction. And I think that in equal measure, science at times can, or rather scientists, can tend to get so dogmatic and also so uh, skeptical that the spirit of innovation potentially might be hindered by a scientist who is not willing to think enough outside the box. So we do need philosophy, and as it applies to UFOs, when a scientist, probably like they'd say about creation – you know, God, death, whatever, you know, that, well, 
UFOs aren't a, a subject that science seeks to address, well, perhaps a philosopher should ask a scientist, why do you think that? You know, if it's a physical, tangible, apparent phenomena in our world, what about that should science not seek to address? Hence, mm-hmm. I have fundamentally come back to all, to the point of thinking that philosophy is important in relation to UFOs. So, you know, whether or not you want to call me a UFO philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good point, though. I mean, I think it was Heineck who said, you know, uh, scientists often forget that there will be a 22nd century, there'll be a 30th century, there'll be so on and so on, and that, you know, there is th- there are things yet to be discovered, and Sometimes yeah. science can hinder that. So, yeah. and, and Ryan, I'll say also really quickly that uh, I saw a PSYCOP article, well, SCI now, but uh, you know, formerly the Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, and the article was, was called The Secret Life of J. Allen Hynek. And it, it, the first issue it took with him was the fact that when he was a young teenager, you know, rather than going out and playing sports and stuff like everybody else, he had saved up money and bought a copy of Manly Palmer Hall's The Secret Teaching of All Ages. I own a copy of that book. And uh, in, in terms of being a, a book on hermeticism and philosophy uh, and as it relates to occult traditions worldwide, I mean, I think it's one of the most valuable books that's been written, if you're interested in that kind of thing, that a skeptical organization would use that as a point against an astronomer, a man who, after, of course, purchasing this book and trying to further himself intellectually at a young age, then, of course, he enters the sciences with hopes of trying to better understand the unknown mysteries of the world. You know, that this would be a point of criticism is just, it's just ridiculous to me. The modern skeptical atheist movement, also a social movement, which is informed by the ideology of the mass, not by the individual, in my opinion. It's just shameful that skeptics have become so skeptical that they won't even allow for an astronomer to read about such things as the occult and hermeticism. These things, they may not be directly relevant to a physicist or an astronomer, but that doesn't mean that these subjects are irrelevant altogether. And I think it's just disgraceful the way that the so-called skeptic movement today has become one that says if 90% of all UFOs can be explained, as many would agree, by the way, then why not 100%? That's their whole modus operandi when it comes to this subject. If we can explain 90, we can explain 100%. I think, therefore, it is not. It's like reverse Cartesianism, and frankly, it's bad science. Well said. Well, Mike, I know that philosophy is something that occupies a pretty large chunk of your mind and something you talk about a lot. And uh, you're, you're, a, you're a thinker. You like to think uh, probably as much as you like to talk, and that's probably a good thing. So, <laughs> you know, he's a podcaster. <laughs> that's right. So uh, tell, let our audience know where they can go to listen to more of your philosophizing as well as uh, your other content that you're putting out on a regular basis. Yeah, well, for those who haven't gotten enough uh, as it is, this might be enough to last anybody a year, just the short time we spent together today, and thank you for that. Uh, but if people would like to learn more about me, uh, my podcast is The Graylian Report, and the website is com. and then there's my website, com. And, and, you know, as far as podcasts go, there's also the Maverick Podcasting website. Yeah, let me think here, maverickpodcasting.org. So those are the ways to find me. And, of course, people can always email me, info at micahanks.com, or follow me on Twitter, at micahanks. I've got my own name. Isn't that cool? (laughs) All right, Micah. It's been fun. Thanks for hanging out with us, buddy. That's it for this week's episode. Again, you could find Micah Hanks hosting his weekly show, The Gralian Report, available on the KGRA Radio Network and in podcast form as well. Be sure to visit kgraradio.com and gralianreport.com. To learn more about Jason McClellan and Maureen Ellsbury's work and to subscribe to The Unknown Podcast, be sure to visit RoguePlanet.tv. My thanks as always to all Patreon subscribers for your monthly contributions to the show. 
if you'd like to help support the show and receive many rewards at many different levels, consider becoming a patron today. To learn more and to subscribe, visit patreon.com slash somewhereskies. We're on Twitter at somewhereskies and Instagram at somewhereskiespod. All past episodes, articles, and contact information can all be found at the official website, somewhereintheskies.com. Thank you for joining me this week. And remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. To learn more, visit entertainmentonepodcast.com.